Today on Blue 58, a look at inside linebackers is going to complete our draft preview series. What will it take for the Packers to get one of the top prospects? Or perhaps more importantly, do they even want one? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode. No big news since we last talked, so we can jump right into draft talk Let's talk about some linebackers. This, perhaps more than any other position, has grabbed headlines this offseason. It's right there with wide receiver as far as popular conversation. Everyone seems to understand that the Packers need help at linebacker. But there are some mitigating circumstances here. First, when do you take a linebacker? For most teams, I think that's a pretty straightforward question. As soon as the linebacker that's on the board matches the priority with which you value linebackers, right? So if you're sitting there in the first round, you need a linebacker, there's a linebacker you think is worthy of a first round pick, problem solved. You got your linebacker. It doesn't seem quite that simple for the Packers because they seem to value linebacker differently than just about every other team in the NFL. And this is something Blake Martinez, a now former Packers linebacker, even talked about with sort of some of his introductory remarks in New York. The Packers just don't value linebackers like most teams. They don't think it's a a position that you have to spend a lot of resources on. And I think overall that approach has kind of worked for them. It hasn't always worked. And it's left them weak at that position, weaker than they probably could have been if they just valued it a little bit more. But I think more or less they've gotten good results with the amount of resources they have put into that position. Not great results, maybe maybe not even good, adequate results. It hasn't been as big a detriment, I think, as people people have always kind of characterized it, it as, even dating back to the, the Jake Ryan era in Green Bay. That said, it hasn't been a strength on the Packers for a while. And I think in this year's draft, there's an opportunity to make it into a strength. Because the Packers already have Christian Kirksey on board, and if not an upgrade over Blake Martinez, I don't think he's that significant to step backwards, assuming he he does stay healthy. Because I think he does a lot of the things that Blake Martinez did, and he's probably a better athlete, and if he's even marginally better in coverage, the Packers have already taken a step forward. Or at the very least, again, lost ground. And if they can add in another prospect at linebacker, then they might really be in business. But that brings us back to the question of where you take your linebackers. Because looking at this class, it seems like there's three or four guys that are really up there at the top, then a pretty significant drop-off, then a bunch of guys who could develop into something if they get into the right situation. And that's kind of the second thing I wanted to talk about with linebackers before we got into talking about actual prospects. Because I think linebacker, of all the positions on the defense, maybe even all the positions in football, I think a linebacker is the most dependent on other people for your success. Say you're an average middle linebacker out there trying to make a play against a running back. There are a whole bunch of different things that need to happen before you even have an opportunity to make the play. First of all, you have to have the athletic gifts to get into a position to make a play. Then you have to have the ability to recognize when something is going on and get to there. But 
if the guys in front of you don't block the guys that are trying to prevent you from making the tackle, you may not even have a shot to get there and stop the running back, even if you do recognize everything, even if you have the physical abilities to get there. Then in coverage, there's all sorts of things that we that can go wrong. We talked about that a little bit with defensive back. There are all sorts of factors that are out of your control that could result in a pass being completed. And a lot of that has to do with coaching. What does your coach want to do you want you to do in a specific coverage situation? Should you carry a linebacker down the seam? Should you play zone a particular way? Should you play man against a running back? All of those decisions will put you in different positions to make a play. So whether it's coaching, whether it's people around you, linebacker is very, very affected by what other people do. And I think that's what Blake Martinez was getting at in his comments. I don't know if you've read them. I don't, I don't want to read them here or take them out of context. I haven't, haven't got them in front of me. But basically, he was talking about how the Packers didn't really put him in a position to be a playmaker. He was almost completely reactive. He was playing off of other people the entire time he was on the field, at least in 2019. You can take that for whatever you think it's worth. It's one guy's perspective, and it's this perspective of a guy who was doing it. But it does show that a player's success is dependent on other people. Even if what Martinez is saying was only half true, there's still a lot of how he played in 2019 that could have been affected by other players. So, you have to value linebackers. You have to recognize that their success might not entirely be in their hands. And then you've got to find a good one. This seems like a pretty good draft for linebackers. At least early on. There's a chance a few of these guys could be really, really good. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about whether or not the Packers should take a guy in the first round. There are a couple of these prospects that I think they should take if they're available, but that's not really the point of this discussion. Let's just take a look at these guys and decide why they might be good. I've got six linebackers I'd like you to take a look at with me. There could be many more, and I'd love to talk about them if you want to bring them up. These are guys that I think could be good in the NFL. And unlike the way that we've looked at other position groups, we're not really going to come up with thresholds and talk about guys that meet them because I'm not sure that really works with linebacker. It was a stretch, I think, to do that with defensive backs. Linebacker is even a bigger stretch because there aren't really any stats at all that I think project from the college level to the NFL. Could be wrong about that, but in the research that I've done, I've really had a hard time coming up with anything that projects. So let's just talk about some of the guys that are thought to be among the top-level prospects, and then a couple guys that maybe more toward the middle or later rounds. We'll start with the biggest name of all. Isaiah Simmons out of Clemson. I would just like to announce that I've got it real bad for Isaiah Simmons. Six foot three, 235 pounds, run a, runs a 439 40-yard dash. He's from Olathe, Kansas, a part of the country that means a little bit to me because uh, of some family connections there. And he can do just about everything. Recently rewatched part of the national championship game this past spring. Boy, that feels like a thousand years ago. This past is, I guess, technically winter. January, let's just say. In that first quarter, he lined up as a safety, a traditional linebacker, an outside linebacker, 
a stand-up pass rusher on the outside of a formation, a slot corner, an outside corner. He can really do everything, and he did everything for the Clemson defense. But I think the versatility sword can cut both ways. Sometimes, if you try to be everything, you don't end up being anything. That is, you never really master anything. And some people have voiced that criticism of Isaiah Simmons. I'm not one of them, but I think that is a concern. I think he was good enough at everything that there really isn't a reason to to be concerned about him finding a role in the NFL. And when you've got a guy who has the size and athleticism that Isaiah Simmons does, I don't think you really worry about it anyway. You might just take your chances with the six foot four, six foot three and a half, two hundred and thirty five pound guy who runs like a wide receiver. Wherever you put him, you might just roll the dice that he figures it out. And it feels like with the the athleticism that a guy like that has, there's a good chance that he will. Carrying on, the second of the the two big, two or three big receiver receiver, linebacker prospects, is Kenneth Murray out of Oklahoma. I have him just personally ahead of Patrick Queen and even ahead of Zach Bond out of Wisconsin. At six foot two, two 241 pounds, he seems like a nice consolation prize if you can't get to, the, uh, get to Isaiah Simmons. If you went to the linebacker store and they were out of Isaiah Simmons, but you get some Kenneth Murray instead, I don't think you're feeling too bad for yourself. I like Murray because if you close your eyes and picture a college linebacker who's going to be good in the pros, to me, I come up with a guy that looks like Kenneth Murray. Big, muscled up, mean looking, looks like he wants to hit you. I think there's a lot to like there. But reading through his scouting reports, you almost start to wonder if he can actually play football. Sometimes scouts try to soften the blow of players not being good at things that they're supposed to be good at by just writing artfully around their weaknesses. Here's an example of that. Here's Dane Brugler writing about Kenneth Murray. Quote, Although he doesn't consistently anticipate the action and must tweak his tackling approach, Murray's instant speed is the equalizer, flowing fast and attacking alleys. He is overflowing with adrenaline and displays the competitive spirit that will win over the coaching staff. Overall, Murray can be late to sort and zero in on the ball carrier, but his outstanding play speed and relentless energy are difference-making traits, projecting as a three-down run-and-hit outside linebacker in the NFL, end quote. So, reading between the lines on that, it sounds like he's not very good at tackling or recognizing what's going on in the play, but boy, he is sure fast. That seems like a bit of a red flag to me. Overall, I like the package. There are others who don't like the overall package, even parsing through some of that that uh, scout speak. And to parse through that scout speak, let's quote a scout who talked to Bob McGinn of The Athletic. Quote, looks like a Greek god, but I don't know how he goes in the top 50 if you draft, other than if you draft by look. Super kid, there are some athletic flashes, but I hate watching defensive players from the Big 12. If, 12, if you're taking him, you're taking him on traits. I was very disappointed, end quote. Again, take that all with a grain of salt. Your mileage on, on scout quotes may vary. Continuing on, if you don't get Isaiah Simmons and you don't get Kenneth Murray, to me, Patrick Queen is a another very good consolation prize. 
Six feet tall, 229 pounds out of LSU. He is the smallest of the three big linebacker names. Queen, Murray, Simmons. Queen is the smallest. Honestly, I kind of think I'm out on the tweener linebacker type. As much as I, I think I would still enjoy having the Packers have a guy like Patrick Queen, if it's between taking him at 30 and taking somebody else at 30, I think it, it might be somebody else, a different position, a lineman, a wide receiver. I think I would pass. Yes, I did call Isaiah Simmons a bit of a tweener, but he also has prototype linebacker size. Queen is a tweener who's built like a tweener. He's not really linebacker sized. He's even on the, the smaller end for a safety, depending on what kind of height you like from a safety. But there are plenty of positive there. Pl- plenty of positives there. He is a good athlete. He's pretty good in coverage. He's a good tackler. He did do it kind of short term at LSU, just one year as a starter there. And I'm a little bit wary of that, but overall it doesn't bother me. I figure if you can do it in the SEC, you can do it pretty much anywhere. Out of the three big linebacker names, I would have him third. Not by a lot, but enough that would make me want to see what else is on the board if I'm the Packers picking at 30. Right behind these top three, I think you've got Zach Bond out of Wisconsin. He is a different kind of tweener, kind of an edge rusher, inside linebacker type guy. And you can see why from his size at six foot two and 238 pounds. He rushes a lot, but not all the time. He plays off the ball, but not all the time. And Packers fans may be having some Carl Bradford flashbacks anytime with somebody somebody with that skill set comes up. That's fine. Personally, I, I don't mind that. I think that's a good skill set for the Packers defense to have. And if you're Mike Pettin and you want three pass rushers on the field, why not get a guy who also has some off-the-ball abilities too to help you disguise some of the things you might be interested in doing? Dane Brugler says... It's hard to sort through what he could be at the NFL level, but he's got good overall skills. Here's the, here's the exact line from The Athletic. Quote, overall Bond's evaluation requires some projection because he won't be a full-time rusher in the NFL, but he displays fluid athleticism, smarts, and motor to line up as a stack linebacker and nickel pass rusher, projecting as a first-round pick. End quote. There was another line from a scout that jumped out to me, and I'll share it with you here. This was a, a an anonymous scout to Bob McGinn. Um, he didn't really do the off-the-ball linebacker stuff until the Senior Bowl. Uh, but when this scout saw him do it, he was very impressed. Quote, I didn't see that in him. He's physical enough. I saw him more as a 3-4 outside or strong side in a 4-3. He and, Bra- and Utah's Bradley Anai are very similar. Good with hands, smart, active, productive, very versatile, good athlete, got burst and speed. He sets the edge well. I like him a lot, end quote. Anai, or Anai, if you recall, was on our watch list at Edge, and I like to see those characteristics lining up. There are two names now that we can watch kind of in similar roles. Now for two more, I guess, day two, probably late day two to day three prospects. I think that probably would be where I would prefer the Packers to be looking at linebacker unless you can get a Murray or a Simmons or a Queen if the rest of the board has been gutted. Starting with Troy Dye out of Oregon, six foot three, two hundred thirty-one pound prospects. Scouts worry about his ability to keep weight on is a phrase I had never heard before, but it comes up in his NFL scouting report. Um, a little bit of a skinny guy, and there have also been some concerns about his work ethic uh, related to keeping that weight on. 
your mileage may vary there. Uh, that's just something that people say. I can't confirm that one way or another. Seems like a nice late round option because he is a good athlete. And if you're going to get yourself a safety linebacker tweener type, just finding the best athlete you can might be the way to go. He could be that guy. Then Logan Wilson out of Wyoming. No worries about the tweener stuff here. Six foot two, 241 pound guy. Looks the part of a linebacker. Good, not great athlete, but an elite tackler per his scouting report at NFL.com. Uh, described as a tackling machine. Other places just stacks up the stat sheet. Sounds a little bit like Blake Martinez, but a little bit more athletic. Maybe not a lot, but a prototypical height and weight build. So let's break this down to sort of a mock draft sort of board. If it was me, I'm taking Isaiah Simmons if he's there at 30, but I'm not trading up for him. It seems like there's a better chance that Murray or Queen is available there at 30. And if so, I would take Murray over Queen. If it's Queen and nobody else that I like on the board, I'll take him. But if there are other options at line or at uh, at offensive line or wide receiver, I would probably go that route. Beyond those those three, I'm probably just looking for value. So if there's an opportunity to draft a, a Bond, a Die, or a Wilson at a place on the board that lines up with with what I valued them at, I wouldn't wouldn't hesitate there. I just probably wouldn't do it in the first round. A lot of people seem to like Bond as a first rounder. I just don't see it willing to be wrong there, but um, that's what this whole draft process is for. That's it. That's our whole draft preview process. We have now worked through every position and we'll probably take a little bit of a break here from looking at actual positions to look at the draft more as a whole. So next week, I've got some plans to do a couple mock drafts. We'll, We'll work through a couple scenarios like taking a receiver first, taking a lineman first, taking a linebacker first, maybe one where we just see what we get um, and kind of work through it with the with the whole sort of draft board out in front of us. Um, and I'm interested to hear your thoughts on that. So if you want to dive in with uh, with a mock draft of your, of your own, do one at one of these various mock draft simulator sites. I don't really care which one. Do one. Take a screenshot and send it to me. Tell me what you like about it. Uh, send that to either the Power Sweep or me on Twitter or wherever you feel like you can get in touch with us. Email, whatever works best for you. Send me your mock draft. We'll talk about that on the next episode of Blue 58. And we'll mix in some other stuff as well as we start to look at the draft more as a whole. Then eventually I want to circle back and take a look at a couple guys that we may have missed uh, who maybe got their pro days in. Uh, after the combine, we'll kind of sprinkle that in somewhere between now and the draft before we do prediction time for the actual draft itself. Sound good? Good. Let's talk about books. Specifically one book. Take your eye off the ball. We are now into chapter two, the 168-hour work week. This was titled, talking about how coaches prep their game plan process. I always get a kick out of stuff like this when they talk about how much NFL coaches work because I have always viewed working too much as a sign that you are not good at your job as opposed to being good at your job. Working lots of hours has never been super impressive to me, and it's not any more impressive when you do it in the NFL. I think there, I have read some studies that show that after, actually after a certain amount of work in a week, you're not actually getting anything productive done. You're basically just moving papers around 
uh, given that your level of productivity has dropped so much due to fatigue. I think that is 100% the case in the NFL. There's nothing that will ever convince me that working 17, 18-hour days to prepare for a three-hour football game actually means you're doing a good job at that. Nevertheless, the process of constructing a game plan is interesting to me as he said in his most passive voice possible. It's interesting to hear about constructing a game plan. And to me, it's interesting that constructing a game plan is a reductive process, not a constructive one. You're reducing your play sheet, not building it up. That's counterintuitive, but if you think about it, it rings very true. Because you're spending most of your offseason building up, uh, taking a scrub brush to your offensive playbook or whatever, if you're Mike McCarthy. And just kind of getting everything in there, the things that you want to do, the things that you want to improve on. And then week by week, it's taking out the things that aren't going to be relevant for your opponent. I really like the anecdote about studying for the Seahawks defense uh, as their various defensive personnel moved out to different jobs throughout the league. That to me was a great example of how scheme ideas spread throughout the NFL and how scouting isn't just about the team or offensive philosophy that you're playing on one week. It's about looking about at the diffusion of ideas throughout the NFL and figuring out how they may be affecting the opponent that you're playing on Sunday. This is, I think, a, a little bit in su- support of the idea of working a lot as a coach. But it, again, it seems to me like more a year-round process than trying to stuff 40 hours of work into 24 hours. Um, but that's just me. I love the anecdote in this chapter about audibles, how that is built into the the coaching process, giving your quarterback a menu of options at the line of scrimmage or the full playbook or not giving them anything at all. The anecdote that he shared about Vinny Testaverde, Testaverde having no audibles at the line of scrimmage because Bill Parcells, quote, knew Vinny Testaverde had a strong arm and usually saw a passing answer for whatever defense he saw, end quote. That reminds me of Brett Favre in a lot of ways. He never saw a problem that he couldn't solve by just throwing the ball a little bit harder. Hey, when all you've got is a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. I love to hear about position coaches as well. I think it was a good reminder of how they are an important link in the chain. And turnover for the Packers at their defensive backs coach position and at wide receivers coach uh, this offseason bears watching with that in mind. Since they are responsible for communicating or teaching the game plan to their position groups, I think it's fair to wonder how those Packers position groups will be managed this year. The Packers have a new defensive backs coach with a long uh, history of success in the NFL, but they did not hire a new wide receivers coach, just shifted some responsibilities around instead. Let's watch how that plays out this season and how it could affect those position groups and performance. I don't know if we'll ever have a good comprehensive idea of how exactly a position group is affecting these these positions, uh, but it is interesting to know that that is part of the process here. Uh, other thoughts before we get on to, to some reader feedback here. Uh, I love the thought-by-thought breakdown of the Seahawks-Patriots thing. Uh, play at the end of that game that, that kind of shifted the direction of two franchises there. Uh, that was really fascinating, and it, it plays into something that that I have always tried to advocate, that there's more that goes into each and every play than we know about. And the stuff that, that Kerwin shares in this chapter is not even stuff that we couldn't know about. That's all stuff that you could learn, but just by watching the game intelligently, figuring out what had worked for the Seahawks in previous short-yarded situations— 
and rationalizing their play call from there. Yeah, it still probably is a bad look to not hand the ball to your Hall of Fame or near Hall of Fame caliber running back when you just need one yard and the Super Bowl is on the line. But if you look into it a little bit more, it becomes a much more understandable decision. Finally, I love the question that he he got about uh, coaching staffs knowing who's officiating a given a given game and their penalty calling tendencies. That is a brilliant bit of gamesmanship, and I think that is something that paid off for the Packers this year. If you think back to the first Packers Lions game and the the calls that the Packers got down the stretch with hands to the face, there that wasn't even a a coaching-specific thing. Apparently, that was David Bakhtiari leaning over to the refs and saying, hey, watch it, he's getting his hands up high. That's something that happens every week in the NFL. And if you're not doing it, that's your problem. And if you get called for penalties because you weren't working the refs, that's, again, that's a problem that you have. Uh, that's not a, a refing problem. Though they should call it neutrally. We all know that refs are human and they don't. So if you're not working the refs trying to get the best possible call for your team, hey, that's that's your loss. Uh, again, interested in your thoughts about these things. If you are interested in following along, you can share your thoughts wherever is most convenient for you. I will find it. Uh, but on Twitter is a good way to do it uh, with hashtag Blue58BookClub. And chiming in there, James L, uh, username Iowa Iron, uh, says, reading it right now, chapter two, I noticed it is mentioned that a coach will pare down his playbook before the season, but I remember Coach Lafleur saying he will grab new plays from the previous week's game that he thinks he can add. I took it as he adds them week to week, but do you think it was plays that he can add to the playbook during the offseason instead, or do you think times have changed since re- since the release of this book? I think that's a good question, and I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, so Matt LaFleur was very vocal uh, this season about uh, wanting to see what other teams around the league were doing and succeeding with and adding that into what the Packers were doing. And I think that occurs on a week-by-week basis. But it's worth remembering that chances are there was there were some of those concepts that were in Lafleur's playbook already. So if he's grabbing something from a previous week, that could be he's picking up something that he saw another team do that's working that he just hasn't implemented yet uh, and bring, being sure to bring it into uh, his playbook for the next game or his, his play sheet or whatever for the next game. Or it could be something that he just had in his game plan that he didn't get a chance to use that he would like to make sure that he uses in the future. Either way, I think it's encouraging to hear Lafleur talk about that. And as we read through this book, it's a good reminder of how that is something that happens. As always, continue to offer up your thoughts on what we're reading um, throughout the week. As you get to it, we will read the next chapter Um, of Take Your Eye Off the Ball for next Friday's episode of Blue 58. If you want to get in on that, it's still available at Amazon. I know we've all got a lot more reading time, potentially, um, than we normally would. So if that's something you're interested in doing, there's plenty of time to get caught up. We're just going to do one chapter a week uh, for everybody who's interested. So I've got for you on this episode. I do appreciate everybody who's taking the time to reach out and say hello, uh, offer their feedback, questions, comments, wherever you find the show because that's really the goal of what we're trying to do here. Keep that conversation going about the Packers, even in this time where there's not a lot of sports happening, because continuing that conversation is how we all become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Mudink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.